Welcome to The Well Woman Show. Each episode is a transformational journey using mindfulness, feminism, leadership, and strategy. Generate wealth and impact your community. And now, here's your host, feminist thought leader, London School of Economics grad, leadership consultant, and transformational coach, Giovanna Rossi. Recently, The Washington Post reported that among gender-identified COVID-19 disease cases looking at over 20,000 people in Spain... Men make up 60% of those that progressed the dangerous pneumonia stage. They make up 59% of the hospitalizations, 72% of the intensive care unit admissions, and 65% of deaths. And that's not all. The Guardian reports that the trend was first seen in China, where one analysis found a fatality rate of 2.8% in men compared with just 1.7% in women. Since then, the pattern has been seen in France, Germany, Iran, Italy, and South Korea. In Italy, men have accounted for 71% of deaths due to COVID-19. So why are men more vulnerable? On The Well Woman Show this week, I share part one of a series I'm doing on the impact of sex and gender on health outcomes. Today, I have a special episode focused on new research related to disparities between men and women in COVID-19, and I talked to Professor Sarah Hawks, Professor of Public Health, Global Public Health at University College London, and co-founder with her husband of Global Health 5050, an initiative that advocates for gender equality in health. On the show, we talk about the distribution of risk and potential response to COVID-19 and the underlying reasons why more men than women may suffer worse outcomes. All the information shared today can be found at the show notes at wellwomanlife.com slash 196 show. You can also continue the conversation in the Well Woman Life community group at wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from Natural Awakenings Magazine in New Mexico and High Desert Yoga in Albuquerque. I'm speaking today with Professor Sarah Hawks. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to to be here, even if virtually. (laughs) That's right. Everything is virtual right now. Professor, I want to ask you, you know, there's some really interesting information being released. And of course, there was the New England Journal of Medicine study of 1,099 patients in China with COVID-19 just last month or just in February, it, it came out. Um, that really talks about and highlights some of the sex and gender differences in coronavirus and in COVID-19. And I know you're working on that as as the director of Global Health 5050. Can you talk about what you're working on and what some of the, what, what you've discovered and what some of the challenges are? Sure. Just to put it in context, I mean, as you say, we um, we work on gender and global health and and have done for for, for many years. Um, and in all honesty, it's a terrible tragedy that um, it's taken a global pandemic for people to think more widely about the the roles that that sex and gender um, or the impact that sex and gender have on on health outcomes um, and the healthcare process. But it's great to be able to shine a light on on the importance of sex and gender in health outcomes. So what we're seeing is if you if you think about trying to analyze the role that sex and gender play in health, you have to start with, first of all, an understanding that by sex, we mean biology and by gender, we mean social norms, social roles, the expectations of our social lives, the social construction of gender. And so in the 
the very the very first thing you'd want to do to understand the roles that sex and gender are playing in in COVID is to look at the sex disaggregated distribution of disease um, and infection and sadly death um, across different societies, and that's the work that we've been doing. Um, over the past few weeks as part of the work of Global Health 5050 is collecting and collating as much data as we can find from every country that is reporting sex disaggregated data. Because when we see the sex disaggregated data, then we essentially start to see the distribution of risk and the potential for evidence-informed responses to, to the infection. Okay, so I understand that you have, you've got access to a lot of data, but there are a couple of key countries that we're interested in that are not providing their sex disaggregated data, and that being the UK and the US. Why is that? And how can we encourage the release of that data? Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, so, so right now we've got data on on thirty five countries, and and we have limited it to the thirty five countries that that have reported the highest number of cases. And I mean, I, I ju- just just to tell you, Giovanna, in a very gendered way, um, all of the data that you see on our website has been collected and collated by the volunteer um, work of young women. So we, we've got a group of young women who are volunteering their time to, to, to collect that data because we were when we first started looking, nobody else was, was presenting the data in this way. So to come back to your question of why we're not seeing this data sex disaggregated by um, in the US and the UK, the honest answer to that is I have no idea idea why presenting the data in this way. I can't believe it's because they haven't got the data. You know, it, it's, it would be the most basic set of data to, to be collecting on people that you're testing, people who are hospitalized, and then looking at the outcomes. Um, you would expect that somebody somewhere along the line is collecting um, data on sex and gender identity identity of the people that that they're seeing. But if they're collecting that data, they're not collating it. They're not pulling it together and putting it out publicly. I don't know whether that's a reflection of people in charge not thinking that this is important. I mean, that that would certainly go along with the, the notion that over the years that we've been doing this kind of work, it is very difficult to get people to pay attention to the roles that sex and gender play. It's not much of a departure from what we've seen over the years in terms of sex disaggregated data uh, in general. But um, do you, so who in the U.S. holds that data? Like who who needs to be releasing it? Is it the CDC? Is it someone else? Yes, it's a very good question. And I'm by no means an expert on U.S. surveillance systems. Um, I would imagine that this is something that the CDC has to rely on individual states reporting to them. Um, So I but but to be absolutely honest with you, um, you know, you'd probably need to get an answer from somebody within 
the U- U.S. surveillance system. From, from the perspective of the work I do in global health, the U.S. surveillance systems are generally held to be some of the best in the world. So it's it to me, it's incomprehensible as to why we're not seeing data with basic information, not just sex, but you'd want to know something about age. And in the U.S., you might want to know something about ethnicity as well, for example. But we're not seeing any of that data. Okay, I was actually going to ask you about an intersectional approach in terms of, you know, are you in the data that you have been able to collect from China, from Spain, from Italy, etc. Have you been able to look at that data by age and by race, ethnicity? So, uh, again, it's very difficult to find that data. There's a couple of European countries that are presenting data that is both sex disaggregated and age disaggregated. And then there's a few countries that are putting the sex and, and, and age together. And we're seeing, you know, what, what, what the distribution of both cases and mortality looks like by both sex and age. It's not, it's not comprehensively done by, by any stretch of the imagination. The question of other intersectional representations of inequality, um, it it varies from country to country, uh, not just in COVID, but across all um, health issues that that you might think about looking at. So in the US, you would, for example, be looking at racial disparities. In the UK, we might want to look at class disparities. In India, it might be caste disparities, etc. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that you could present and better understand the reality of, of, of the pandemic across communities. But right now, it, we're we're just grateful to be seeing the data disaggregated by sex, but we know that systems could be doing so much better in terms of understanding who is actually at risk and being affected by the by the epidemic. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what you found and and what what we're seeing with the data that is available, which is that. Um, just to be very general, and then hopefully you can be more specific. But in general, we are seeing that actually men are uh, going into intensive care or actually passing away at higher rates than women. And you can, you know, give some of those rates if you if you have them handy. But I also want to just say there's been some discussion and writing about the the reasons for that. And we have some reasons around behavior, you know, in some countries, they say, well, more men smoke uh, than women. And that's certainly true. Um, in some countries, but not all countries. So that really can't be the complete explanation. Um, other kinds of habit type lifestyle things like, well, men don't wash their hands as much <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, and then there's the question of, you know, actual uh, genes and like um, sex differences. So can you talk about the date, you know, the numbers you're seeing and then kind of the reasons behind that? Sure. So, so we're collecting three different kinds of data points. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the first data point you might want to, to understand in, in the pandemic is who gets infected. Um, and that's actually very difficult to answer right now because we're reliant upon data about who gets tested 
Um, and, and, you know, right now, as we're seeing, who gets tested is, is really context dependent in each country because it depends on the availability of, of test kits. Um, but where we've got data that is about who uh, infection rates, um, sex disaggregated infection rates, we're not seeing huge differences in, in whether it's men or women getting infected. So it's relatively evenly split between infection rates in men um, and women. So whilst there, there's, there's lots of good reasons why we might want to encourage men and women to be uh, washing their hands, not just because of COVID, but for all other infectious diseases and, you know, good personal hygiene, we definitely want to encourage that. Right now, we're not necessarily seeing big differences in the infection rates being recorded between men and women in the 35 countries that we've looked at. What we're seeing, um, as, as you alluded to earlier, is differences in the um, severity of disease, who ends up in intensive care, and most importantly, in terms of the data that we're able to, to analyze most, most carefully, we're seeing quite big differences in terms of risk of death. And risk of death seems to be um, really substantially higher in some countries um, in men compared to women. In other countries, the risk um, is, is a bit lower. But across all the countries where we have that data available, there are higher death rates amongst confirmed cases of, of COVID um, in men compared to, to women. So the $64 million question is why? And again, I can't give you an exact answer to that. But undoubtedly, as with the case with so many other parts of the human health um, story, it's a mixture of both behavior and biology that's playing a role here. So we, we know from all sorts of studies that have been done over many, many years that, for example, the immune systems of men and women behave differently. And part of that is, as you might expect, women's bodies are designed to do something really quite different to men's bodies, you know, so our, our immune systems are designed in a, in a different way to men's immune systems. So we're sure that, w that immune system differences will be playing some part in, um, in contributing to these, these um, severity and death rate differences that we're seeing between men and women. But we also, what we're also seeing from the data is that there, there seems to be a relationship between risk of death and the existence of other non-communicable diseases and other um, what are called comorbidities, other illnesses that are present in people who then go on to have a, a greater risk of death. And many of those other illnesses seem to be um, heart and lung disease there's some suggestion that there might be a relationship with body mass in index as well. But we haven't got good data on that at the moment. But there is some evidence that if you've got a pre-existing condition, um, a heart or lung condition, that you might be more at risk um, of a severe outcome if you then get COVID infection. 
And what we've known for a very long time is that those diseases, those other diseases, are more prevalent, more common in men compared to women. So the work that we've been doing for, for many years is trying to explain why you see differences in those diseases between men and women. And again, some of that will come down to biology, but a large part of that difference is driven by differences in the gendered norms of behavior, that the, the, the behaviors that then lead on to the risk of heart and lung disease. And the biggest contributors to those behavioral differences are smoking and drinking alcohol. Okay, so when when we look at this, we it really does bring us back to the question of gender, even though we were look, you know, even though we see the difference in in sex and the outcomes in terms of the data, where if you follow the sort of trail back, it really does go back to gender and behavior uh, based on gender norms. So, what is the next step for you? Yeah, that's a that, that that that's a good question. So for for us, I mean, I think like everybody, we we've got we've got a plan for for what to do here and now, or what we would like to do here and now, and then sort of how this contributes to 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 a longer term plan, which I suspect is the way most people in health are currently thinking. So you know, in the immediacy, we would like to be able to keep on collecting this data not just for the sake of collecting data, um, fascinating though data sets are, but because we want this data to be used in evidence-informed decision-making because we really think that when you start to see these stark differences, that that gives you some kind of entry point for more evidence-informed action in the here and now, both in terms of reducing people's risks and in um, more evidence-informed responses in the clinical realm as well, as well as the public health realm. In the longer term, we're really hoping that this, this, that, that one, you know, it's it's very hard in the middle of a pandemic, isn't it, to think about anything positive that might come out of this. But we really hope that this will will help people think much more um, frequently and um, and more in depth about the role that gender actually plays. In, if, in having an impact on the health of everybody. In health, I think we've been pretty good on making clear the relationship between gender and the outcomes of health for women. What I think we've been less good at is showing that gender norms can have a negative impact on men's health too. Um, and for us, you know, when you start to look at these gendered norms of behavior, like smoking and drinking, where you, you, we see huge differences in smoking and drinking rates currently in many countries, perhaps less so in the U.S. now. But if you think about the age of, of the people most at risk from covid um, severity and risk of death right now. They're in older age groups. And, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the differences in smoking and drinking rates 30, 40 years ago would have been a lot greater than they are amongst um, younger generations now, for example. So, you know, it's it's difficult to, to, to extrapolate from the here and now to, to what what the risk factors were 
sort of when people were younger. But that's the kind of work that we try to do. Well, Professor Hawks, um, to, to kind of loop back to end this segment <clears throat> with something that you started out with, which is to say, you know, it's amazing that it takes a pandemic for, for us to really focus in on and be able to do the kind of analysis that we <laughs> need to be doing. Um, and and I, I feel like we could say that about a lot of things that are changing and happening. I mean, we're, we're seeing real inequities being addressed right now in terms of access to um, online learning and education and, um, and, and health as well, and just in so many different ways. So we'll be looking uh, forward to more from you. And I would love to have you back to, to talk about more findings in the future. Thank you very much. It would be a pleasure to come back in hopefully happier times. I've been speaking with Dr. Sarah Hawks of University College London, and we'll be right back. I'm so thankful for support from Natural Awakenings Magazine in New Mexico, a monthly green, healthy lifestyle publication, and for support from High Desert Yoga, promoting optimum physical health, clarity of mind, and spiritual inspiration for all. Many of you have followed my journey from consulting to women's leadership and empowerment, starting a nonprofit, raising two kids, and everything in between. I've really taken some time this year to focus in on where I can help the most women with their own desire to create social impact and also a good income for themselves and their families. As my consulting and coaching practice is growing, I found that one of my favorite things to do is the free discovery sessions. I love hearing about people's passions for the work they do, sharing what I do, and helping people understand what my hybrid consulting coaching is all about. Hint, hint, serious strategy plus spacious mindset. So if you find yourself worrying about whether you'll ever make it in the thing you're pursuing or waking up in the middle of the night anxious about money, lacking energy you need to get everything done or procrastinating on moving forward with projects and tasks, or even if you're in a leadership role, but you're second guessing yourself and not getting things done, I'd love to talk to you. These conversations help me get clear on how I can help more leaders create the impacts and income they they want so they can start living with ease and joy. Plus, you'll get a free hour with me to get crystal clear on what you want to create for your company or organization and your life and what's been holding you back. So if you're interested, you can book a call at wellwomanlife.com slash learn more. I'm back with Dr. Sarah Hawks, Professor of Global Public Health at University College London. And before I let you go, Professor Hawks, I would love to do a very short, because we're almost out of time, a segment on... Um, something that's a bit more personal for you. So if you don't mind, we'll spend a couple of minutes, um, quick round of questions here uh, to get to know you more personally. And I know in our pre-interview talk, you were, t you were telling me that you uh, were delayed for the interview because you had to go to the pharmacy um, and you have an elderly mother that you're taking care of. So can you talk uh, uh, just very briefly about y who are you in the world right now? Like, you know, we, we know all this, good work that you're doing, but who are you in the world and how are you handling uh, life right now? So who am I? Well, you know, I, I suspect like most women, I have a professional persona and a, 
and a, and an at-home persona. So my professional persona, I think we've covered. And my at-home persona is that um, I am indeed um, in in a household with my 90-year-old mother. So I'm an only child. So um, I'm, I'm still uh, very grateful to have my mother alive and would like to keep her that way. Hence, um, I've basically made sure that she hasn't left the house in a number of weeks. Um, I'm also the mother to um, two young people who are um, university age students and hence have bounced right back home because uh, because the universities all closed a couple of weeks ago too. So we're a multi-generational household, which I suspect is is exactly the position that a lot of people have, have currently found themselves in in a quite unexpected way right now. So we're a household sort of rediscovering family dynamics. Okay. And what can you describe a personal habit that you're making sure you do on a daily basis that contributes to your own well-being so that you can stay healthy and well um, and you can skip the hand washing because we already know about that <laughs> um, so that you can you can stay healthy and well so that you can do the important work um, that you're doing oh that, again another very good question I have discovered the online um, seven days of sweat challenge. So I'm making sure that every every day I do a 20-minute workout um, with an online physical education teacher who has kind of gripped the UK um, with his infectious enthusiasm for making sure that we're all keeping fit. And I'm I'm in my kitchen every morning, um, bouncing up and down, doing star jumps and bungee jumps <laughs> in a way that I haven't done for decades. Oh, I love that. Okay. Um, what superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time? Oh, um, do you know, I've, I've, I, I actually think my superpower is, is, is really mundane. I'm really good at filing, so, which, which in the life of somebody, you know, as, as, as busy as we all are with the multiple components of our lives and the, the many things that we have on the go all the time, um, the ability to, to be able to organize my online life in a filed way is basically what keeps me going. <laughs> That's a great one. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you uh, have what, what advice would you give yourself when you were younger, like 25 or 30 years old? Oh, um, I think I would. Um, I think I'd say I needed to believe in myself a little bit more. Um, but I think I would also say I needed to listen more. So I, my, my biggest advice to myself would be to, to, um, to take on board listening skills earlier. Okay. And last question, do you identify as a feminist? Oh, absolutely. I, yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> what does what does that mean for you briefly? It means believing in a philosophy, a movement, a way of living, a way of life that benefits everybody, that believes in equality, 
for the entire human race, irrespective of gender identity, racial identity, class identity, any of those other identities that we like to put people in boxes um, and, and label them, that there is equality across the board for everybody. Professor Sarah Hawks, it's been great having you on the show. I look forward to having you on again and uh, good luck with all your important work. Thank you very much, Giovanna. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and good luck. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your Well Woman Life, head over to wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook to join our community. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week, so be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.